0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Welcome everyone to this HC Insider Podcast live event hosted by Benchmark Minerals Intelligence, a leading price reporting agency for the critical minerals world. Um, A big thank you to you all for coming. It's obviously a, (laughs) a wet and windy evening in London, so thank you very much for that and thank you again, to benchmark for for graciously hosting us. Um, Today, we are first of all, my name is Paul Chapman, I'm managing partner of HC Group, a search firm dedicated to commodities and host of the HC Insider podcast. Today, we're talking about the trading future of critical minerals. The vital importance of these markets becoming efficient, lower volatility and risk managed to the future of the energy transition. What will it take to get there? And what are some of the derailers that might stop them achieving that. Our panel is Guy Winter, a partner at Faskin, Matt Ashley, senior cobalt trader at Traxxis, Jess Fung, head strategist for Parlor Investments, and Casper Rawls, chief data officer at Benchmark. So um, just a couple of housekeeping things before we start. Uh, we will, we'll go for about 45 minutes. I know the panel's pretty pessimistic that we'll get, it, get through everything. Um, and then we will Turn the mics off. Turn the, our mics off, and do a, a private Q and A, and then we'll retire for drinks and networking around eight o'clock or so. Um, so let's get started. I guess you know before we talk about the some of the accelerators and challenges to getting to this idea of an an efficient and vibrantly traded critical minerals world. Um, Starting with you, Casper, can you give us some sense of, of why that would be important, what that would mean for these markets? And perhaps give us a little bit of a definition around critical minerals before we kick off as well.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, good question. That's, yeah, I, I could speak for the whole hour on that, maybe, <laughs> but, Um Yeah, so first of all, definition. In, in my world, really, I think about the, the minerals that enable the energy transition or will enable the energy transition. So primarily, that's gonna be the, the minerals that go into lithium-ion batteries, so lithium, cobalt, nickel, graphite, manganese, um, but also, you know, there's some other minerals that people lump in there, particularly people talk about rare earth minerals associated with, um, yeah, like renewable energy generation, so silicon, polysilicon or copper as well. So there's lots of different definitions of critical minerals out there, but, you know, from my perspective, I generally think a lot about more about the lithium-ion battery minerals initially, and that's probably where I'll spend most of my time talking about them. If anybody else wants to talk about rare earths and other things, they can, but... That's for me. And, and why it's important is, you know, we're really going from what has been a speciality niche sector to scale. And that's already kind of started to happen. And we can see, you know, if we think about lithium over the last few years, that's gone from $8 to 80 to back to 11 or $12. You know, that's a crazy amount of volatility. And when it's a small market, you know, for the people that are in the market, that might be a problem. But broadly speaking, it doesn't impact, you know, the wider economy or, or you know the wider world but as these as these markets are scaling we need the way that they're traded to mature to help with price risk management uh, to help manage some of that volatility um, and to make you know uh, make the you know these markets be w- when they're more freely traded we will help incentivize new supply because people understand you know what the future looks like how they can protect themselves in terms of price risk management as i say um, and, yeah, fundamentally, I think that's kind of where we need to get to, to get to the scale that we're talking about to fuel the energy transition. Mm.
0: And we'll come on to this. It's surprisingly absent in a lot of government planning at the moment, the role of, of private industry. I mean, Jess, maybe you can give us, from an investment standpoint, private capital coming to work in the energy transition, why this is also important in your world.
2: Yeah, so obviously, um, prices are, drive the top line. And for us to be able to value a project or value some operations, you know, we need to be able to very, very first, in the first instance, model what that top line is going to look like, how much revenue and cash is going to come in, and then we can have, add all the costs to that and, and decide whether or not something is viable. But it's very, very important. And if from year to year the price is moving up and down by 100% and down by 80%, um, it's very difficult to to be able to say with any conviction, this is a great investment for us over the next three, five, seven, ten years, whatever your investment horizon might be. So this is why being able to have, I think, a little bit more stability in the prices or at least the ability to think about hedging them or <coughs> managing them or pricing options, all of the above, and any way to be able to structure some more stability in the top line will, will help a lot because the costs, surprisingly are, can be quite stable, and you kind of inflate them, you know, you know what, what labour looks like, and you have a, an idea of what interest costs are going to be, and, and that type of thing. But um, but that top-line volatility really drives volatility in the bottom line, and, and that can be a problem in terms of being able to value something properly.
0: Mm. Matt, as our uh, resident trader. Resident trader, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's
3: probably a controversial thing to say, but yeah, that type of volatility from a trader's point of view is actually... <laughs> <When did laughs> <you happen? laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's getting me quite excited, though. Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think what you, you know, the, the basics of why a free traded market is going to be sort of desirable for these types of things, you know, obviously price origination. Um, but most importantly, as well, is sort of a trading role is, is sort of a twofold thing. You've got partly a sort of paper price hedging, price uh, management system. Uh, and if you don't have a sort of an active trading base, you've got nobody to pick up the hedge on the other side. The other bit, really, I suppose, the the advantage is is to manage flows. And I think it's something that people don't talk enough about in regards to critical minerals, particularly the EV chain. Um, a lot of chat about this is that it's hermetically sealed and whatever. Well, you know, experience of COVID, experience of Ukraine, experience of you know, God knows what else is coming, invasion of Taiwan possibly. Um, shows that, you know, you cannot have these linear supply chains and that you need really an active trading base, um, a free market base, to manage those flows from a physical point of view as well as a pay-per-price management point of view. Yeah, you can
0: see, obviously, how Europe managed the energy crisis. Yeah, exactly. As a result of a freely traded energy market, right? Yeah. Despite some of the headlines and so forth. Yeah. I guess, Guy, from your standpoint as well, I mean, it would make for a more stable world in terms of contracts. And, and, and transactions as well
4: well I think you know I think the really important thing Paul if you take a step back from this you're talking about energy transition and as soon as you you start to look at the drivers for energy transition the challenges that we have in delivering what is you know the biggest capital program since the industrial revolution there's an absolutely enormous spend and I know benchmark have some great numbers to actually you know, bring those to life, the amount of capital that you have to bring. It's impossible to have the certainty to achieve any of this without any kind of transparency. And you're also asking yourself, what energy transition do we want? So to start with, in the early days, maybe not all of the questions have been asked about the provenance of material. But as I think as we move into um, the, the next stages of energy, energy transition, we're asking ourselves about the sustainability as well. And I think one really interesting thing in terms of the regulatory backdrop is to see uh, provisions like the EU batteries regulation come in. Now, you could argue that that's a uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing in some ways in terms of European protectionism. In fact, you could argue it's a wolf in wolf's clothing because it's so blatant how they've tried to achieve it. But at the same time, there are some really, really important Underlying fundamentals in terms of passporting for batteries and all of these will drive a greater sustainability agenda and it will also go to form the markets that that we will all be participating in the future. And so we can't lose sight ultimately that what everyone wants, everyone in the industry wants, is a just energy transition and a critical minerals sector that is fit for purpose um, for the energy transition that we need.
0: Yeah, which is a tough one because and we're going to talk about true price, right? That's a key part of this discussion. And I think William Bergs in the in the audience at the moment, who uh, we talked about the EU battery regulation, because on one side, in order to get to more efficient markets, there's this drive to need these products to be more commoditized, more fungible. On the flip side, you've also got these other pressures that weren't present 20 years ago about provenance and attribution and so forth. I mean, Jess, maybe you can. I mean, oh, Casper, how, how do you? Can we just talk about that idea? of Because you've got products like cobalt that are much more commoditized and fungible, all the way through to the specialty chemical world that is a lot of these minerals. How do we? Is it even feasible? And how do you get to a point where there is some level level of commodification that they can be more traded, and more risk managed? I well, get bad direction <laughs> there. So whichever. One is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I I sort of. As as I was thinking about critical minerals in in this this podcast today, I was was thinking about the iron ore market and how that developed, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, At the time, it was a a really opaque market. The price was set once a year and it was between two very large, you know, it was a large supplier and, and, you know, generally one large consumer. And there wasn't a lot that was known about it. At the same time, you know, iron ore is is a concentrate product that comes out of the ground, a lot of different grades, lots of different deleterious elements in it. And what occurred over, you know, probably five or six years and and really came out of the ascent of China um, was a much more liquid market that also had some standard prices in it. You know, there's a 62% iron ore, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's something that can happen with critical minerals, and, you know, that's one of the things that Benchmark does is they try to figure out what is the standard product on which we can provide a price quote, and then everything else, you know, that is sort of around it gets premiums or discounts, and and that's the way that the market is going to trade. We also have to think about where the supply and the demand are because, you know, what is the trading route and are we going to do it on an FOB basis or a CIF basis or whatever. But those are the things that I think can happen in the critical, for for critical minerals. But somebody needs to take the lead and it needs to happen. And eventually we will go from, you know, rather opaque markets to something that's hopefully a little bit more transparent, possibly even on exchanges at some point. So...
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's funny, when you were talking about INOR then, you were saying, you know, it was a single price set for the year. I mean, that was lithium a few years ago. And, you know, and a lot of these markets have gone through to, you know, move more towards market-led pricing using, you know, prices, uh, benchmarks, prices, or PRA pricing. Um, but I think there will need to be some commoditization. I think fundamentally, you know, the markets are going to get closer to something like a commodity. I think maybe not what we consider now like a true commodity, just because of that's... Speciality nature and and the real strict requirements on purity that we see for lots of different battery chemicals, um, but you know, and something we were discussing earlier as well is that you know everyone's looking at these markets in that they need to get to a place that somewhere like iron ore is or, or or maybe copper, but you know the technology is there now to trade these in a different way. Why can't we look at different technology solutions to be able to trade, you know, you know, to Guy's point, you know, sustainability criteria or provenance criteria can be attached to it and. Uh, various other metrics that people want to use, and, and you know, think about the way that we do trade these commodities. Can we rebuild it in a better way? And you know, I think exchanges will be a piece of the pie. There's lots of other solutions out there as well. But you know, fundamentally, whatever it is, how the market moves, if we're going to go from yeah, like a single, you know, lithium market, 1.2 million tons this year, three million tons by 2030, and you know, a much bigger number by 2050, that we are going to need to commoditize them to some extent. Mm.
4: Going. Yeah, one really interesting thing, I think, will be to see black mass um, pricing come through as well, because you know obviously one of the drives that we have, and again, to reference the EU regulation, but you see um, a, a much greater demand for recycling. and so European recycle, you would expect will attract a premium over time, because if it has to be 15 percent of all recycling that is used within the EU you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that that, that is going to attract a, a premium along the way. And so I think, again, to Casper's to point around the commoditization, it can't go on as it is where you literally have got three different, you know, one refining plant that is producing different spec product for three different off-takers. So there's going to have to be greater commoditization, but then maybe also there's going to be some bifurcation in terms of you know is something a, a EU spec you know quite frankly the one thing we were hearing in in, in dabo was that a lot of concern from Afri- african producers that actually they won't be able to comply with passporting rules and so even though at the moment everyone is is saying we'll be selling the top premium product are you actually able to do that so the market could simultaneously get more okay. commoditized but also broken out into different price points depending on those different criteria.
0: Yeah, this tension between decommoditizing again for attributes but the need to actually commoditize. Matt, we were talking mm. beforehand about you know cobalt that you know with all these this group of critical minerals is mm. on the leading edge of right, of, of yeah. being commoditized and is commoditized and is traded and is an efficient market and now on yeah. like this, <laughs> now on the exchanges. And that's brought a whole yeah. new group of participants yeah. in that have have yeah. an impact. Can you I, tell us that journey? Yeah, you know,
3: well, I mean, I, just as a quick congress, I don't think we should exaggerate too much, like, the idea of commodification or whatever is in the future. There's already, like, a very active base for all of these things already. You know, it's not necessarily new. I think the debate is more about how this thing develops, you mm. know, how it develops, um, and the dangers to that, which we'll get onto a bit later. But, no, I mean, if you take something like cobalt and lithium, to answer your point, I mean, you, I think last 24 months, particularly, you've just seen a total sea change really, with the CME, particularly, you know. Um, And it's changed the way that people have traded continually. Um, And it's through that, I mean, as I say, if you take cobalt specifically, cobalt traders in the audience will know this, is that cobalt traditionally, something like that, is a positional play, you know. So you're long or you're short. And you would go years of, you know, or so a year of never selling anything, only buying, and then another year of only selling, not buying, etc. Well, things like the CME have changed that fundamentally, where you can buy... Physical, you can hedge on the CME in a way that you could never previously do that. And that type of development has now opened up the door to, uh, I think, an increasing number of hedge funds, banks. We see banks taking risk, which is quite sort of interesting. Um, bridging the gap between OEMs and traders on the other side, taking taking pure risk. Um, the, the key thing is, can it grow? Can it continue to grow? And I think, I think it will, because something like COBOL, for example, where the, the real sort of development is... It's always been, you know, relatively small market really compared to you know some of the stuff that everybody knows, nickel or whatever. But the sheer amount of cash that can come in from the sidelines because of that now, you know, because of the CME, it's attracting more cash, more liquidity, um, and you know then exponentially changing the market. And does that allow
0: just that comes back to making it easier to finance and allows more money to flow to those markets? Is that a
2: I, I, would, I, would, I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, to, to Guy's point, there, there is a lot of capital that is needed to build out sufficient supply for the energy transition. Um, and yes, having, uh, I think, some, some reference prices on, on exchanges, um, having some standard, standard prices helps but the reality is that prices will always commodity prices are always just generally volatile and it is a very cyclical industry and the challenge is you know we sit here every day and we look at it and, and we're quite comfortable with the fact that you know things will move up 3 4 5% in a day and then down the next day and we say oh that's all right that's pretty stable for you know 95% of the investing world that is ridiculously volatile <laughs> and they don't know how to manage it. They cannot get comfortable with it. And so even if we said there's XYZ you know, million lots that you can hedge cobalt with, they're still going to sit there and say, mm, I don't really understand what is happening here. And isn't cobalt getting you know, engineered out of batteries anyway? So how am I supposed to think about this? That is the vast majority of investors. And that is the vast majority of traditional lenders as well continue to think that way. So yes, it will help. I, I think the commoditization of prices helps. But there, it is still a very, very niche industry. And let's not kid ourselves that, that that's what we work in and try to deal with every single day. So that that is a challenge. Um, and then on top of that, you've got higher cost of capital that's required because of this volatility. And you know, you've know, you got some a lot of frankly upstream mining projects that sit there and go I am not willing to give somebody a 30 percent return <laughs> I think that's you know too high a cost mm-hmm. for for what we have and I don't believe you know cobalt prices are going to be at the levels that that are required to to generate that kind of return it's it's all it's a holistic challenge that being said hopefully we can get you know, a little bit more capital flowing this way if we if we got more liquidity in the market.
3: It's a it's a very chicken and egg thing, I think, isn't it? And it also needs some visibility further downstream. I and mean, a lot of the let's say OEM base needs to step up in many ways. You know, that's been one of the major problems I think if you look at investment long term into stuff like nickel, cobalt, maybe not lithium. But like, you know, you have a lack of visibility and people are not stepping up. So you've got very much you know, a lot of in sort of, a lot of in-depth discussions about, well, you know, we need X amount of this and we need X amount of that. Okay, well, you know, give us a contract. No. You know? <laughs> okay. But, but you, you, right? you build it and then
0: we might take it. So, <laughs> we're, <yeah>. a, It's <laughs> a major issue. But we, so we're going to start talking about the pessimistic side no, I know, I know, about I know. the future <laughs> of this. <laughs> Sorry. And it's all right, we can go out of order. It's fine. <laughs> but I, I, let's understand that a bit more, right? Because mm. like, a key part to this, of course, is... OEM incentives, producer incentives, the supply chain incentives yeah. to operate in an open market. And, you know, and again, it's not like you've got a an energy world that's very familiar with commodity risk and financing and so forth, right? Sophisticated mm-hmm. purchasing sales teams, often they have trading teams. It's very different when it comes to an auto manufacturer or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Can you just, um, I guess, unpack that and we'll let everyone else comment on it? Just, what, I mean, why are they not? Uh, I suppose because I want to have the cake and eat it. <laughs> I mean,
3: I suppose the problem with, with the battery, the sort of EV story, it's outside of China. I mean, the, the, the EV story in China, as we know, is very rapid. It's very fast. It, it, it makes sort of fast decisions. The sort of pattern of EV implementation in Europe and America is a much slower process. Um, takes a lot longer to make decisions. It's starting not totally from scratch, but it's it's somewhat beyond China as we know. You know, a lot of these guys are working on six year plans or ten year plans or stuff like that. You know, um, one of the key problems within that there seems to be a lack of decision making or, or basic indecision about a lot of the battery technology itself. You know, uh, and that's stalling a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, and then you've got other factors, things like you know, I'm sure we'll get onto this, but things like the IRA, a lot of the legislation, you know, to be fair to a lot of the you know, the OEMs, etc., it's quite hard to make a billion dollar investment in something if you're not entirely sure what's going to happen on a geopolitical slash regulatory level, to be fair to them. You mm. know, so you've got all these blocks, you've got like and that's a sort of long term scale for everything. And then you've got these other parameters in there which are sort of preventing the decision making process. Um so understandably, they're approaching the market, I think, and saying, "Well, you know, yeah, all right, you produce these and you build capacity, whatever." And you know, five years time, we might take it, or we might not. Yeah, but that, you're going to invest money on that basis.
2: I think that's it, right? It's it's mm. a totally new supply chain yeah, it's for them, be built. and not yeah. only are they, you know, having to either build a new plant. For, for EVs or retrofit yeah. these plants, and they need to do it at such a scale to yeah. to make money because frankly, they, they make very, very small margins, uh, you know, automakers. Mm-hmm. Now they're also sitting and saying, I need to procure batteries that are worth what one third of the value of of my production, uh, which I've never had to deal with before. Exactly. That's a
3: very new thing. That's exactly, the other thing. It's a and the technology thing. And, is volatile. Yes, yeah. and
2: now I have to also understand mining to figure out <laughs> how I'm going to yeah. get access to these critical minerals. And
3: I've got to find the DRC on a map and all yeah. these sorts of things. You know? But <laughs> yeah. it's true.
1: It's true. Yes. And, it's true. Yes. It's and, not. I mean, it, it's not just that as well. It's that you know up even now the majority of automakers are buying critical minerals in batteries right they're not mm. they're not going to mines and saying i want to buy this mhp that i'm going to then have told into nickel sulfate and then i'm going to have uh, you know pcam made somewhere all of that's completely new to them so it's not only understanding the battery battery technology commodity markets mine. there's a huge learning curve that's had to happen over the last and you know has happened over the last few years and we're really getting to the time now where we're gonna to start to see a lot more automakers getting directly involved in the upstream, the kind of mining side of it or the battery chemical side. And that will there'll be some learning there. And then do we see more mine investments? Maybe. We'll see. I mean, you know, it's very it's very much outside of the wheelhouse for of an automaker generally to buy a mine and operate a mine. So, you know, how do they do it? How do they structure it to protect themselves against the volatility, but also, you know, not to overpay?
4: Okay. More moreover, you know, everyone talks about that somehow it happened that all these value chains ended up in China. It's it's not any type of coincidence. Like there's really, really good reasons why this stuff is done in China because, you know, a lot of the <laughs> processing of these materials. Nasty. Is is nasty, it's toxic, you know, even absent the sort of ionic clays, like really awful histories of of pollution. The fact is that it, you know, it's capital intensive, it's dirty. Um, and so there was a lot of uh, good reason why the, the West allowed this to migrate. What, what I don't think anyone realized was how strategically important it would become with the, with the EV transition. So we're now in a situation where you allow entire value chains to evolve over 20 years. And again, I think it's extraordinary. People talk as though China is standing still whilst we're catching up. Like of the total global investment, in Critical Minerals, you know, in 2023, the Chinese players were, represented a massive proportion of it. So the question isn't how much we're catching them up, as to how, how, whether we're even standing still. I mean, when you talk about the UK, we're, we're running backwards. But I mean, you know, we in the sort of ex-China West. And, and so actually, as soon as you kind of understand it that way, it's not surprising, and I agree completely, why on earth would an OEM want to, to go and build a mine, and then someone says, actually, it's in the PCAM that all of the value is. So suddenly I've got, I've got like, ore, I've got concentrate, but now you're telling me that all of the value is going to get taken out in the PCAM process. So I build PCAM, and then they say, actually, it's the activation process that is where the value is. And so you re- it's like that game, you know, whack-a-mole, Like all the time you're looking for where this sort of uh, value leakage is, and you Mm -hmm. whack it, and then it turns out that it's uh, completely different. Now it's cell assemblage. You know, there's all kinds of of, of points in the value chain. And unless you look at it at a really sort of integrated way, which frankly no one in the West has so far, because even in the most sophisticated views of it, it still involves licensing in Chinese technology, it's really, really hard not to lose your shirt. And frankly, almost all OEMs know that they're going to lose their shirts on everything short of actually taking material that smart guys can trade for them.
2: The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence, and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world.
0: But is that, and I might have got this completely, you know, I'm clinging on, <laughs> but the traditional method of an OEM is yes, right, I'm going to vertically, you know, I'm going to secure my, my supplier, they can't, you know, can't sell it to anyone else, they, they work for me... Mm. <clears throat> and the, the mindset is, therefore, to do the same with these new technologies and with these raw materials that go into them. Hmm. And in part, that's because there is the absence of a vibrant traded market. Is that... A f- I... well. Uh,
2: I, I would I I would argue. Part of the puzzle. Yes, I, I think yeah. that's part of the. I think it's part of the puzzle. Exactly. They can get steel from from almost anywhere. You know, there's a lot of glass manufacturers now. Al- Aluminum, rubbers is, is readily available. So I think that is part of the problem. And but but frankly, it's it's there's just not an understanding of how this is going to evolve. And there's no there's not high conviction outside of China to to be honest that this is really going to take off in the way that that it's. You yeah. know, that a lot of us know it's going to take off. but uh, People like
3: of? the headlines, but, you know, it's like whether that, there's still a doubt, I think, in a lot of these guys' yeah. minds, whether this is really going to happen. But to create that certainty is what you need. You need some certainty and that, to be honest, if we're going to have a vibrant traded market and all this, I think you need large-scale, to be honest, massive uh, state
0: action. You know, but, not just incentives. But, I mean, it, it needs so, we, so we, real engagement. We're obviously talking de-globalization now. Yeah. the big topic in, in pretty much every podcast we do, right, is, mm. is coming up. And, and obviously now this is very much at the strategic level within governments, the good offices of benchmark and at the Senate and so forth. It was, you know, that itself, though, creates a lot of distortions, whether it's the IRA, whether it's the EU battery, you know, um, create a lot of, you know, uncertainty about whether that supply chain is going to, you know, what we've seen in solar, for example, or will it shut that down that, again, make it very difficult um, for it to be a, a freely traded market in the new technologies, new minerals for the energy transition. And that, again, results in higher costs and higher volatility, right? I mean, yes, you know, it does need state action, mm-hmm. but that comes with a series of challenges for just this kind of... But I think it's a bit more existential, mate. Or
3: without it, you aren't going to have anything.
1: Yeah, I, I think no. for I think for me, the the, the question is you know because these markets are growing so quickly over such a long period of time volatility is inevitable right we're not going to be able to get away from that but if we mature the way that these commodities are traded it means that you can protect yourself from that volatility to an extent i mean everyone's exposed to some degree but that and that means that you won't have huge companies going theoretically going bankrupt like the, at the moment the downstream the automakers they wear all the price risk effectively hmm. and there's not adequate tools for them to be able to protect themselves and there's not necessarily easy ways for other people to come in and take some of that volatility uh, you know, trading, however they may do it. So if we, if we do that, that, that is an, you know, another lever to enable us to grow these supply chains as quickly as we need to. You know, If you have huge companies going bankrupt, it does tend to upset further investments <laughs> in the future. So yeah, it's, you know, it's an important piece of the puzzle.
4: Yeah. Guy? Well, you touched upon the IRA earlier. And so I don't want to sort of jump into that out of secret. Please go ahead. But, uh, <laughs> you know, ultimately, the IRA, you know, that's like a capital black hole. And, you know, in terms of ex-China investment, but what fundamentally what it is, it is inefficient, because it's creating, it's like a partial, it's strategic globalization. So instead of having the full on globalization, where everything migrates to the place that it can most economically and efficiently be produced. What you're saying is, where can that be done within places that have free trade agreements with the United States? So then you look around and they chose their places quite well. When you look at Aussie and Chile and Morocco is a really, really interesting one, I think, you know in the, um, you know, in the sense that, that that actually shows how winners can be created from this kind of it's sort of like um, you know, Casablanca or something. These little oddities that, that spring up from the tectonic plates of geopolitics. But I think what, what we're seeing now is the spheres of influence are, are opening up. And so you know when you talk about, people talk about an ex-China supply chain, and really the interesting thing is who all gets to be in that? And you know how are how there yet more complications in terms of the alliances. You know, the EU has a really vital role to play. I like to think that here in the UK, we would buddy up with the EU. There's a bit of history with that, as you know. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, so I I mean, I I really think that it's a sort of, it's a modified globalization. And the interesting thing will be how how efficient ultimately that proves.
0: Because theoretically, of course, you're no longer choosing the best, the the cheapest economic Point of production, right? You've now got these two spheres of instruments they're, they're growing further apart. You're either you're either in with the DOJ or not. You know, whatever you want to talk about on that one. late. Like, that does in the end. A, you've got to, that will mean prices are higher, but also to, to you know, your colleague Simon's point. I mean, these are very slow builds as well, right? I mean, to to put a lithium, a, you know, a, a battery plant together, it's seven ten years. I mean, this is not a Insignificant lift. I mean, Jess. I guess that's your world.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think there is um, increasing friction that will need to get priced into not only the commodity prices. It, it's going to make its way through the entire value chain. The only thing I wanted to add to Guy's point is um, we talk about an ex-China supply chain. That's the way that we that we simplify it. The reality is there's probably two or three other spheres that are actually developing in the world. You know, If, if anyone's been to Riyadh to the Future Minerals Forum, you know that there is a very, very strong push for Middle East, kind of Eastern Europe, a little bit of Western Asia, down into Africa supply chain that is really trying to get built there in a very similar sort of way that that China managed to build out its supply chain. Lots of capital available, you know, lots of energy available, et cetera, et cetera. So there is an interesting sphere that is already occurring there. You also have, obviously, China, which is tied into Russia, let's be honest, and Korea and Japan that are also trying to figure out exactly what sphere they're they're. Going to be part of because are they going to join you know the U.S. or are they going to do it where it makes the most economic sense mm. so uh, you know all of these are going to add to the cost of production they're going a- across the, in the entire supply chain and so when we talk about let's have the adult conversation about what the true price this is, is going to be this that's what we need to be yeah. talking about including the sustainability bit as well which is a huge part of the puzzle
0: is it right to say in saying the general assumption at the moment is that whilst these supply chains are going to be blockitized, so to speak, the end product can be sold anywhere, right? And this is what we see at the moment with the expected flood of Chinese cars coming to Europe at half the price of the cheapest, lowest model in the US at the moment. I mean, can you just talk to that a bit? Because that plays into this true price bit as well. Like, what?
2: Well, just very, very quickly, um, Guy was talking about how China has been building the supply chain for the last 20 years. It was inevitable that after a processing and refining and building batteries, the next thing that was going to come out was the entire car. Yeah.
1: So that's mm-hmm. where we're at. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think we may see that obviously disrupted by policy, and I think that's what's, you know, to Guy's point earlier, you know, you've seen that in Europe, you've seen that in the US, where there is a, a move to protect local industry, um, whether that's via tariffs, via requirements on, on subsidies, various different things. But, yeah, I think, you know, yeah, China's sort of scaled their industry so sufficiently that they are the most cost competitive, obviously. And that, you know, we, we will we will be able to reduce costs, you know, in Europe or, or North America, and subsidies obviously helping that right now. But there's a way to go, and I think, um, you know, policy is, well, my view, particularly at the moment where we see prices generally across the board for critical minerals are pretty low. Um, policy is the main driver of the industry at the moment. Like that's really driving a lot of the investment decisions and a lot of the way that people are looking at the space at the moment. Mm.
2: Except, but, sorry, can I just say, the the one thing that is interesting about that is when I put my investment hat on, tariffs are not a, a good reason to make an investment. Because historically, and maybe this is part of the, maybe I'm in denial of what deglobalization really looks like, but you know, in the past, we've talked about, Protectionism, like you know, that's been around the industry for many, many years. Uh, and now there's this whole tariffs and CBAM and sustainability and battery licenses. And I and I sit here very skeptical if that's really going to be stable and structural enough for me to hang an investment decision on. That that's just my perspective, and maybe it's because we're the marginal investor, and so we end up <laughs> taking quite a bit of risk in well, there. Well,
0: I think you, you place a political volatility that right. we're seeing throughout the West, right? Fees into policy volatility. You've got deglobalization, which is driving, manifested in protectionism, right? Which, you know, that's a that becomes a war, you know, a, a, a battle as opposed to necessarily sort of an ordered process. I mean, I'm just thinking of the of the four of you. I think I want to be Guy most. The, the lawyers will win, and this is the <laughs> Well, then that then
4: normally plays <laughs> most reliably <laughs> in the period. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I, I agree with you so much, Jessica. I think it was really interesting. There was a lot of talk about weaponization of rare earths a few years ago. And this is the one that has kind of stuck with everyone. I actually think, and maybe it's not a bad thing, it went under the radar a bit, but lithium has been weaponized. So when when the IRA came out, so cattle suddenly announced this deal. And they basically, all of the um, Western cell makers, such as they were, were saying you know you're going to have to suck up the extra cost of of the product, and cattle actually offered a deal where they would eat the additional cost of of any swing in the lithium, which I thought that was an incredible statement because firstly there's no way to hedge that on you know with a a, a traditional exchange hedge um, as, as we've discussed, but also what they're basically saying is we've got this like Mm. At the, the lithium value chain, essentially, we can control the price of it because we have it sufficiently end to end. And, you know, that was a huge message because what they were really saying is, however big the tariffs are, we will ensure through other uh, points in the supply chain that we can still make the Chinese product more competitive. I mean, that that is an extraordinary message. And I think when we're all driving BYDs, like in yeah. five years, we'll probably remember that. Well,
0: and it's know. not unannual, there's an analogy what the IRA has done to Europe in some ways as well, right? I mean, it's not just China next China. It's let's. We've got a couple of minutes left. I just want to talk true price, and I'm particularly interested because I've yet to have a conversation where someone's convinced that the end consumer is willing to pay for some of these crucial attributes unless they are mandated by a tax. And again, that just means these prices are going up for consumers, but can you just, I guess, Jessica, can you frame up what you mean by true price and, and how this plays into this discussion?
2: Yeah, so to, to me, true price reflects everything. When we talk about sustainability and, and what the energy transition is a big part of, the true price reflects all of that. So it, it reflects not only the cost of production, it reflects fair wages, it reflects However we want to think about emissions, whether it's through carbon prices, it has to reflect a true cost of capital. So CATL subsidizing their lithium volatility is actually just because they have such a low cost of capital and and they can afford it. Um, All of these things together and the consumer will have to pay for it eventually in some form or other, maybe not on the price tag, but in some form or other. And the problem, the reason why we don't talk about it, is because policymakers refuse to acknowledge it. And it's a very, it's not a politically great thing to say no. that the price of everything that you guys are going to consume is going to go up by twice as much because we've decided on a battery passport.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think maybe consumers haven't realized that all of these great like uh, sustainability drives are at the cost to the consumer. Like it, it's, it's going to add cost. There's no way around it. And. You know, at the end of the day, I don't think that's being priced in. I mean, obviously, if you want the true price, you come to Benchmark. You really <laughs> but we, we have launched um, very recent or fairly recently, at the end of last year, a sustainable lithium carbonate price grade. And what that reflects is, um, so as part of the work we do, we have a sustainability division and we do um, reporting on the various different critical mineral worlds, all the different producers and um, look at them across about 79 different sustainability metrics. And we, the tier one, the, the, the best of, of all the producers, we, we price that material and show that, you know, where that's trading relative to the the you know, the market average, let's say. Mm. And it's not always, at the moment, it's not necessarily been the case that that price is higher. So there is, you know, at the moment, you know, the companies that have invested in sustainability aren't necessarily seeing that return. So we haven't felt it yet. And, you know, there's many reasons for that. Part of that is also that the more sustainable companies tend to be larger. So you see volume discounts in terms of of what they're trading. But fundamentally, like one of the big questions we get all the time is like, what's the green premium? at the moment it's not priced into the market maybe that happens in the future but no one wants to agree to a premium no one is going to write into their contracts i will pay a premium Everybody how many wins. people
0: offset their carbon on their flights is the yes that
2: is <laughs> a, i like asking that question Do a show of hands <laughs> on that
1: but the
0: just one 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 final piece um what seems to be and i think I mentioned it before but what seems to be absent from many of these policies uh, i think it's just a critical point for this panel to, to mention you know whether it is the IRA, whether it is you know, EU battery policy, EU critical minerals act. There doesn't seem to be any engaging engagement with the trading community. It seems they are absent from all these discussions, hmm. and you know which is what I find remarkable. Right, if you are in Europe, that's the home to most of the world's trading houses. They're an incredible asset to have about figuring out some of these supply chain challenges, whatever role they end up playing. But. It doesn't seem like that's a live discussion, which is the, the genesis to this discussion today, right? Is really actually highlighting and talking about this and some of the challenges and so forth. But it doesn't seem like there's that much engagement with the people who are actually moving and lubricating the global supply chains for these commodities. Uh, no, really, I can see. Maybe they're just not ringing me, I, <laughs> um,
3: no, I don't think the reason. I think it's a cultural thing. I mean, let's take the EU, for example. Let's take a, a sort of a slightly random example about reach. Any of us who've had the unfortunate uh, experience <laughs> of having to deal with Reach on a regular basis, uh, years I will never get back in my life. But like, when you look at that, you look at how Reach works. It's a technical point, but it, it sort of explains the mentality. For example, like Reach, Can you sort you just of explain what it is. Just oh God, oh God. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so it's a, it's a, a, a sort of a, a registration system for people importing. A wide range of metals and chemicals into Europe, basically, to track and trace and make sure that you know people aren't throwing it into rivers and, and this sort of thing. Um, but when you when you dig down into how that, so that works on a day to day basis, like there's a whole set of strange assumptions in there, where it, I can't explain this. It it, it 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 never sort of acknowledges that there's traders, for example, in the first instance. So you have things like I was only representatives and all these things, which are quite technical. But at no point does it really acknowledge that, like, you can have traders, you know. And that's like a key star. Now, obviously, we all get round it, and you register in certain ways and whatever. But it's a key. I, I mean, it's just a mentality thing. It's mm. just like a cultural thing, you know. They see what well, traders or whatever uh, as, you know, whatever, you know, making money, etc. As in fact, really, what you are to an extent is a service provider.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. but
3: they don't see it like that. You know, they. they it's not even on their radar. It's well people produce things and then those things go to people who consume it. And you have this sort of Soviet style sort of system <laughs> where things just go from A to B and that's it. And and there's no there's no recognition of like what I'd call you know, shock absorbers or liquidity or optionality or things move around. Um, and as you say, you know, Europe's home to the to, to the biggest traders. Yeah.
0: Which is there's also on the part of the traders themselves, which has historically been a more opaque industry, right? It's not like there's been much engagement well, as sure. well. No. Um, <laughs> but you know, and I, I think that story plays out in what's happened in the energy yeah. crisis we mentioned at the start. Yeah. OK, final question, and I'm perhaps just go down the line. It's you know, we tried to sort of think about how could we sum this up. And the easiest question we came up with was, in 10 years' time, will, will every trading house have a lithium desk?
1: Yes. I believe so. I think I mean it's you know it's it's energy right? Well, everywhere that has an energy trading desk should have a lithium trading desk. Or, yeah, I think there will be.
2: Yes, I I I agree. The lithium market is going to be so large in in ten years uh, that that it will make sense for everyone to have a lithium trading desk, and maybe Benchmark will be, you know, providing the pricing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we will. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
3: <laughs> we have one, you know. Yes, it's a, it's a key component, because what you have seen within most of the trading houses is trying to move into this sort of, and it's slightly contrived, but this sort of idea of a battery metals team, you know, EV space, etc. like trying to create teams of that. There's a few challenges to that, because I think what you turn out is you've got where well, you've got some nickel traders and some cobalt traders, some lithium traders, and trying to herd pigeons. But yes, I mean, it's a, it's a key component of where people are trying to go, you know.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not going to argue with the more august characters to my left now. But also, the thing, I'll also be really interested to see what other new traders there are. Will we have vanadium traders, Mm. you know, more PGM traders? We don't really know where this battery journey is is taking us. Pretty confident that in 10 years, we're going to have a lot of lithium. But there's going to be other metals that really come to the, the forefront of energy transition, which is, is one of the most exciting things about it all. Yeah. So Matt might be a vanadium trader by then.
0: Never know. And Jesse did say something really interesting, which was, it doesn't mean though it's going to look the same as trading today, mm-hmm. right? New technologies, whatever that might be and so forth, but there's it, not necessarily going to be, it might not even be humans, right? But it, you know, it, it won't necessarily look the same as, as today's markets.
2: I, I think so. I think I think there can be some very, very interesting structures that will get priced in. Um, and, and and, you know, Casper was saying as well, it, we've got the data and the technology and the speed and the information there and frankly, AI. So there is going to be a very, very interesting way to, to trade many, many commodities in future, I, I think.
0: Right. We'll leave it there. Well, thank you very much. I think an excellent panel, really enjoyed it. We'll open up for Q&A, but firstly, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.